0: explain why we struggle why we sometimes find church polarizing or difficult or hard to understand what we're about as a movement of Christ and and what Jesus wants us to be and I'm going to start first with our own selves you see some of you came to Christ and you almost wish you didn't come to Christ and the reason I say that is, yes, you're glad to go to heaven, you're glad to know that your sins are forgiven, but then after you accepted Christ, it's been frustration after frustration. And you, you're confused on what God is doing in your life, and you find that the movement that was so exciting, that was so attractive, that drew so many people to Jesus Christ into the early church, you're, you're like, where's that at today? I don't see it. I'd rather be at a football game today or I'd rather be at the lake or I'd rather be somewhere else rather than in the ecclesia because I believe we've, we've bought into some false narratives that are based upon how we got our Bible. Now we need to understand something here. So some of you feel in bondage today when it comes to following Christ or being a part of the church because maybe you've bought into some of these. One, obedience leads to blessing. I've shared before, one of my favorite hymns growing up was trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And a lot of us have what Michelle and I, we call the A plus B syndrome. We think if we do A, and we do B right, then God's going to do C just like he said he would. Some of us give out of our obligation. Some of you here are just like, can we just go back to the offering boxes? Can we just not even talk about the offering anymore? And so when it comes to giving, you view it as an obligation or something to to feel guilty about or or something that, oh, this is a rule. In order to be a part of this church, i got to give 10%. And and it becomes difficult because you're saying, my debt is overwhelming right now. I can't give. And and I don't want to hear Pastor Mark or Pastor Brian or Pastor Keith or anybody talk about giving because the perspective is you give out of obligation, Judgment for unbelievers. You know, that's why a lot of people in our world today struggle with the church because we're hell and fire and brimstone. You know, those bad people that don't believe in Christ. That is the problem with this world today. And, And we love sometimes to talk judgment, but then it's very confusing when it's one of our family members or one of our friends that has chosen a lifestyle, and now we're confused, and how does that fit in? Prodigals. All of us deal with prodigals. I I remember when I went out to California, and now I had been in the ministry for quite a few few years, and um, I, I was on staff, and we had a fairly large staff, and one of the things I noticed was almost all the pastors on staff had a prodigal. Someone who had, had walked away. And when I hear people talk about prodigals, that's one of the things. We don't like talking about prodigals sometimes. But we, we've bought into this idea that we should shun them. That we should stay away from them. That we shouldn't talk to them. That we should kick them out of the house. And as you look at this list, eating with unbelievers, America is the new Israel. That We're now God's chosen But then we look at America and we see all the problems and all the chaos and we're we're trying to figure it out. Are we really the new Israel? The Ten Commandments lead to salvation. I have to say, you know, when I came here, I I talked a lot about grace and I don't hear it too often. But over the course of ministry, I used to hear people all the time saying, well, I obey the Ten Commandments so I'm saved. Or that is how I get saved. i got to keep the Ten Commandments. You see, one of the things that has happened is we've taken the Old Testament and we mix and match our application. And so the reason that happens is because all of us get a Bible and we're told that the Bible is all equally inspired, which it is, but we're given a Bible that starts with the Old Covenant rather than the New Covenant. It starts with the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And so we get our Bibles, but we're not taught how to study the Bible and how to apply it to our lives, and it makes it very difficult. You see, when Jesus came and he says, you're going to be my ecclesia, and I'm going to build my ecclesia, he didn't come to establish Old Testament 2.0 or Judaism 2.0. He came to establish a new movement. I got up here, my Bible, first Bible I ever got. I don't know if any of you have a Bible like this. This was my confirmation Bible. And it says April 27th, 1980. I'm not going to say how many years that is because a couple of weeks ago I was speaking and I said I was born in 1966 and I gave the wrong age. So I'm not going to say how long 1980 was, but it's been a while. And I don't know, if you, you can come up here and look at this Bible, and maybe your Confirmation Bible is the same way. Ooh, look at that. Never once been read. There's a little bit of difference between the two Bibles. One of these Bibles has fallen apart, which this is about my third or fourth Bible I've been through. When I got my first Bible as a kid, and I noticed I had something in here. It was how to prepare for Holy Communion. And you know what's listed in it? It's the Ten Commandments. And how I prepare for Holy Communion by going back to the Ten Commandments and looking at that and trying to embrace that as a form of self-evaluation. Now it's very interesting, many of you maybe are in the same place. As Andy Stanley says, some of us were taught to revere the Bible, put it in a box, but we're not taught to read the Bible. And you see, I believe that some of this has caused difficulty for us, and we're going to see it in a little bit. I'm not a heretic, and I'm not anti-Ten Commandments, but I'm going to help us to see that, that Jesus came and the Ecclesia broke through to a new movement. You see, this is a verse that I want us to look at and to explore. Notice this verse. It says, "It is my judgment," and this is James, the brother of Jesus, is speaking. And we're going to explore this a little bit deeper. He says, "It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult. That we, we should not make it troubling. It, we should not make it hard for the Gentiles." If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Most of us, I'm a Gentile. That's the other nations. And so the way we should look at it today is, James is saying, it's my judgment. It's, it's my decision that we should not make it difficult for unbelievers, for the unchurched, for those de-churched, for those who don't understand what it means to be a part of the ecclesia. We shouldn't make it difficult for them. As they try to churn, as they try to follow Jesus. We should make it easy. We should make it clear. And we should make it attractive. We should make it engaging. We should make it enticing. That people want to be a part of the ecclesia. And that they want to follow Jesus Christ who is the leader of the ecclesia. Again, Jesus said, I will build it. It's, it's the Lord's ecclesia. It's not my ecclesia. It's not your ecclesia. It's the Lord's ecclesia. And it's a powerful place. And it's a powerful people to be a part of the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly. Now these are some of the ways I believe we make it difficult for others to come to Christ. And to follow Christ. And so when people get excited about maybe having their sins forgiven, or they get excited about maybe wanting to come to church for the very first time, and then suddenly something hits them, and it's like, well, this is a little bit too difficult. Uh, This is a little bit too strange and too troubling, and I don't know if I want to be a part of the ecclesia. You see, when we don't invite, that makes it difficult for people to sit with me. And church after church... Most churches you go by, they have a sign and it says, you are welcome here. But put yourself in the situation of being an unchurched person. It's not easy to say, oh, I I think, oh, that church says I'm welcome there. I'm going to walk in those doors. That's why we need to invite people and we need to ask people to sit with us, not just at church, but come as Brian was saying the ecclesia it's it's who we are as the body of Christ and it's our movement but when we don't welcome that means we don't accept we're not gracious we look at somebody hey you're sitting in my chair what's going on and I've heard throughout I've heard a lot of strange things I've heard of youth going to a youth group and And people saying, why are you here? You're not welcome here from other youth. Those things make it difficult for people who want, especially youth who want to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, when we don't love like Christ. When people see the ecclesia in division and hatred and fighting and disagreeing, it doesn't make any sense. When we judge, condemn, criticize, and grumble, it makes the ecclesia difficult. It makes it troubling. It makes it overwhelming. When we value rules over relationships, when, when we say it's about the rules and not the relationship in the home, it doesn't work. When we say it in the church, it doesn't work either because Jesus, as the leader of the ecclesia, He wants to have a relationship with you. And He wants us to have a quality relationship with one another in the ecclesia. We live common lives. What do I mean by that? You know, the school has a theme, uncommon. It means Romans 12, one through two. We're supposed to live different lives that are uncommon, but when we live common lives, and I have the word up there, hypocrisy, we make it difficult. And I have seen this over and over again. When Christians are behaving like the unbeliever, it makes it hard. And some of us have made it hard for our children to want to be a part of the ecclesia or to to be a part of the church because we're living our lives as common lives, and we'll see this in just a second. We draw lines based on preference. When, When we say the church is this and this is our preference and we're going to do it this way, Or the highway, we make it difficult. And last but not least, when the ecclesia is more concerned about who we can keep rather than who we can reach. Two weeks ago, I said that the ecclesia, the mission, the plan A, is to go and make disciples of all people, of all nations, which is pretty powerful. And exciting. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We're going to look at this verse and a couple other verses. So if you don't know where Acts is, go towards the second half of your Bible. If you're not looking at it on the phone, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you got it on your phone, it's pretty easy. Look halfway through and you will find Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and then find the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10. I want to take a pause a little bit in what I'm trying to communicate and help you to understand sort of the story as it was unfolding. Jesus died on the cross. He rose again. And the resurrection was the event that started the ecclesia. Again, two weeks ago, I said, Jesus called all the disciples together and he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. And But he said, Wait for the Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapter 1, they're seeing there, they're hoping that the kingdom is going to be restored. See, they had a different plan for the ecclesia. Just like we might have different plans, they had a different plan. They thought the kingdom and the king of kings was going to take over the reign. And Jesus says, no, wait but you shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you should go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And it starts off great. Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And he was talking about Jesus Christ, who he was, and he got crucified and he rose from the dead. And boom, like 3,000 people are saved on the first day. And they believe, and they're baptized, and they start this ecclesia, and we've talked about that as well. It's about breaking bread together and fellowshipping and encouraging, and it starts to move. But guess what? It stays in Jerusalem. And I believe at this point, God the Father pulls Jesus aside and puts his armors around him and says, you know what? They're still in Jerusalem. They're not moving. They're, they're, they're not being the movement that I've called them to, to be. What are we going to do about this? And I don't think Jesus says, well, I don't have a plan for that. But God the Father probably said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy named Saul? And Jesus is like, you mean the one that is trying to kill the ecclesia right now? Yeah, the, the guy who is the Jew, who is the Pharisee of Pharisees, he's the top dog from the Jewish world who hates the church, he calls them aside and says, hey, we're going to do something radical here. We're going to call the Pharisee of Pharisees and he's going to reach into Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so then persecution breaks out. But it's very interesting. If you read about the persecution as it breaks out in the early chapters of Acts 6 and 7, it says that the apostles or the disciples who were told to go, they stayed in Jerusalem. And so you you read stories about Philip leading people to Christ and Stephen. And and, and then Stephen is stoned. By who? By Saul. In Acts chapter 9, then you have the conversion of Saul and then, it's not confusing, he just had two different names, just sort of like Brian was talking about with Peter, had different names. And so... Saul, transformed into Paul, becomes now the one who's going to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And he starts to do that. But before he does that, God gives Peter a dream. You see, this dream picks up 10 years after the resurrection. They're not moving. Yes, Jews are getting saved. And they're becoming Jewish Christians or Jewish believers. But they're not reaching Gentiles. And so in Acts chapter 10, hopefully by now you have found it, he has a dream. And in verse 15, he says, Then the voice came to him again a second time. This is God speaking to him in a dream. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. Again, I said one of the ways we make it difficult is when we live a common life. We've always been called as Christians to live uncommon lives, to live differently than the rest of the world. So Peter, as he's having this dream, guess what? Here's a knock at the door. It's Cornelius, and you can read about Cornelius. He was a... He was a very religious person, a good dude, but he didn't know Christ, which there's a lot of people in our world that are good dudes that don't know Jesus and have never trusted in Jesus, trying to do right, but still haven't accepted the gospel. And so if I could pick it up then in verse 27, Peter is there at the door trying to figure out who these people are that God wants them to have fellowship with. 27 says, as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. So Peter is now going to understand what it means to interact with the unchurched or the worldly. Very important. 28 says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Can you imagine that today? Going over to an unchurched person's house and saying, you know what? I really shouldn't be here. You're you're too common. You're defiled. You're unholy. You're unrighteous. I I shouldn't have anything to do with you. God's going to judge you, by the way. And God's not really happy with your lifestyle, so I'm not going to associate with you because I don't want to get those spiritual cooties. That's what Peter is saying. He's like, but now God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Gets better. Notice verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Some of your translations may say God shows no favoritism. That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. You see, the Old Testament was written to one nation, the nation of Israel. And it's broken down into two covenants, the Abrahamic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant it was never meant for us to mix and match and apply things out of the Old Testament. He's now coming in and he's saying, God doesn't show partiality. Why? Because the New Testament is about all nations. How we reach Gentiles, how we reach people who are different than us and who don't live like us. This is powerful. And so he says, But in every nation, verse 35, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter goes on and explains the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And guess what? The Gentiles get saved. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And it's sort of interesting as we're reading about it. You can go sort of look at it, and then it says, well, the circumcised believers, that meant those who were some Gentiles that did get circumcised, they were amazed, oh, the Holy Spirit can fall on them even though we're not circumcised. Can you imagine being in the group that was circumcised and realizing, oh, I can come to Christ without being circumcised. Well, this goes on, Paul and Barnabas, you can read about it, goes into Antioch, and Guess what? The Jewish people, the one nation, those who were committed to the Abrahamic Mosaic Covenant, they weren't accepting Jesus Christ. In fact, they were rejecting Jesus Christ. And so Paul and Barnabas says, from this day forward, we're going to go and we're going to reach the Gentiles. And it's in Antioch that people are first called the way. And so people are now starting to join the ecclesia because they understand that is the way we should live. We should live together as the body of Christ. This is our new gathering. This is our new fellowship. And all along while the church is growing and expanding, the Jews are crossing their arms and they're saying, we don't like this. Now, you need to know the Jews didn't call it the Old Testament. The Jews didn't call it the Old Testament. They called it the Jewish scriptures or they called it the law. Or they called it the law and prophets or they called it the Torah. And in that, the the hallmark was circumcision and following the Mosaic way. So this starts to brew over and it leads us to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 turn over to Acts chapter 15 verse 1 you gotta see this and this is powerful and I would encourage you to go back and listen to Brian's message again I would encourage you to go back and just read through Acts it's it's fascinating but verse 1 says but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that, that is Teaching those in the ecclesia who were Gentiles who were come to Christ, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That means you cannot be a part of the ecclesia. You can't be a part of the group unless you're circumcised. Notice verse 2 And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's an idiom, it's a figure of speech. He's saying they had a fight. A fight broke out, a verbal fight, a verbal disagreement broke out. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Now if you're reading this, you may think, oh, this just happened a week after the resurrection. No, we're talking now maybe 20 years after the resurrection. We're talking maybe 10 years after what we read about with Peter and Cornelius. Some time has has lapsed, and people are wanting to go and do it the old way, a part of the old covenant rather than the new covenant. Verse 3 says, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. It would be so helpful, I don't know if there's any actual Jewish people here or not, most of us, I'm assuming, are Gentiles. We need to see us in the story now. We need to see us in the ecclesia. This is wonderful news because it affects how we live as the ecclesia. Verse four says, "When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed. They were accepted. The Gentiles were welcomed by the ecclesia and the apostles and the elders, and they declared that all his God has done with them." But And there's always a but, right? But there were some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees who rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Can you imagine this? Imagine living in Antioch and Paul and Barnabas are here explaining the good news and the gospel and you can come to Christ and and everything's going to be wonderful and you can be a part of this new group called The Way And now people are coming in and saying, oh, before you come into the sanctuary, please step over there, sir. I mean, this would be frightening. This would be intimidating. And not only step over there, sir, guess what? You're going to have to keep all the law of Moses. But notice this. This gets really exciting. Verse 6 says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. That means they had their first church meeting. It said there had been much debate, and then Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by the mouth of the Gentiles you should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Again, you remember? Brian talked about this last week. Peter is there based upon the confession that he is saying that Jesus is Lord. And when he's saying, I'm building this ecclesia, And Peter was going to be one of the leaders of this ecclesia. He's standing up among everybody else and saying, let's get this right. The Gentiles are coming to Christ by faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. This is exciting. And nine, he said, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, we are, are you putting God to? Te- therefore, why are you putting God to test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Verse eleven, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like them. We should be saying amen and amen and amen. This is exciting, and if you don't have your Bible open, I want you to see it. But we believe that we will be saved, we will be delivered, we will, if you want to say go to heaven, but I think that's a shallow view, that's that's the low bar. We will be forgiven of our sins, we will be set free. By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. But this is tough. Some people still aren't buying into it. So notice verse 12. And the assembly fell silent, got quiet. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. God is at work with the Gentiles. Or is the Jewish Christians going to accept it? They're going to welcome these people into their gathering. And after they had finished speaking, James replied. Now this James is the brother of Jesus. And if you study the Gospels, you will know that James was a skeptic. I would be. If my brother said he's the Lord and Messiah and Savior, I'd be saying, what are you talking about, bro? But after the resurrection, which is a powerful um, evidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, because his brother definitely would have pointed out, see, I told you, he's dead. He died on the cross. End of discussion. But no, James... Becomes the leader now in the Jerusalem church. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them as a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Verse 16, he says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David That has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all Gentiles who called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James quotes from Amos. If you want to go back and you can look at it. And James is saying, I understand that the Messiah was going to reach the Gentiles. And this is confirmation that God is doing what he said he would do. So there needs to be a break. You see, again, words matter. And notice in verse 19, he says, my judgment. Literally, he's saying my motion. If you've ever been a part of a board, there comes a time when you make a motion. That's what he's doing here. He says, my motion at this first meeting My verdict, my judgment is this, and I need somebody to second it, and I need somebody then to to, to all say amen and agree to it, but this is what his motion was. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Again, we shouldn't make it difficult. It's interesting, I was wondering, what does that word difficult mean? It's only mentioned here in the scriptures. What does it mean? Literally, it means to crowd out. And I, I was thinking about that. Ecclesia is calling those out of the crowd to come in. Difficult means to crowd it out. I don't know about you, I hate crowds. I, I find it difficult. I mean, there's a long line in Costco. Guess what? I try to figure out which one's going to be, so I can avoid the crowds. Sometimes I don't even go into Costco, it looks too crowded. The other day, we, we went over to Lee Summit, we were going to get something to eat, and thought, oh, let's go to Texas Roadhouse. Woo! I got crowded out. So I'm always trying, is there a different way? Can I call them? Can I say, hey, I'm Pastor Mark over in Harrisonville. Can I have a seat right now? No, I I didn't do that. But when you get crowded out, and James is saying, we need to make it easy and simple and clear so people can turn to God. Verse 20 says, but you should write to them to abstain from immorality and from, from, or we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from things that have been strangled and from blood. For from the ancient generations Moses had had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, if you want to try to figure out what those next few verses mean, you can take a lot of study. There's a couple of ways to look at it. First of all, I don't believe he's saying you need to avoid idols and sexual immorality and things strangled and the blood and all that in order to be saved. Verse 11 says you're saved by faith alone and grace alone by believing in Jesus Christ. So the question comes, is he making a suggestion on how they should should live in order to, to please God and to, to live for God and to live for His glory. And that makes a lot of sense. Because if somebody comes to Christ, I'm gonna say the same thing put away all your idols. I'll talk about the different types of idols, but I'll say put it and you know, the sexual immorality, it's just not working. You have to admit, it's not working for you. It's not going to continue to work if you're following Christ. You need to put that aside. I get that. That's all going to help us. It's not going to get us saved, but it's going to help us in our relationship with Christ and one another in the church. What I think he is talking about is the fellowship of the ecclesia. You see, the ecclesia is exciting and unifying Or it's exciting and attractive when it is unified. And they knew, you're not going to get a Jew and a Gentile to sit together. If people are eating food that has been mixed with idolatry, and I think the sexual immorality, that was what most pagan religions, that was part of their fellowship. And and so what I think he's saying is, if you want to have fellowship in this new ecclesia, there's some things you're going to have to do. I don't think anything to do with the salvation. Now notice how the rest of the story ends. I'll just jump to 28. He says, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. And then he lists those requirements again. And he says, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Well. It will go well with you. It will go well with the Ecclesia. So long. Amen. Goodbye. Farewell. So how do they respond? So verse 30 says, so when they went off, they went down to Antioch, and they gathered in the congregation together, and they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. <laughs> it would be encouraging. You see, some of us as Christians, again, we're finding it difficult because we're so in love with the old covenant, or we're mixing and matching with the old covenant. What we don't understand, that Jews understand, is that the Ten Commandments was not Ten Commandments, it was 613 Commandments. And we've been set free from that into the new covenant, and that's encouraging. So notice it says in 32, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the ecclesia, or the brothers, with these words. You see, they were setting a new new movement based upon encouragement and strength and coming together in unity around salvation in Christ alone, faith alone, and in the resurrection to change lives. Now, how do we apply this? I'm just going to go through these real quickly, and you can think about them, and maybe I may post these online as well for you to think about. Here's the change that occurred. We went from 10 commandments, which I said is more like 613 commandments, to a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. That's what Jesus said this new ecclesia is all about. Animal sacrifices. Aren't you glad we don't do animal sacrifices? Most churches, you can't even bring coffee in, right? Imagine animal sacrifices and the bloodiness. But guess what? It has changed. to something better. We are the living sacrifices. That's why we, we gather together to worship. We are the living sacrifices. We're in the era of grace, not law. And God's grace. Israel. I learned this early on in seminary and I didn't understand it when I was given my Bible but Israel was to stay in the nation of Israel. Ecclesia is to go out into the whole world into multiple nations. See, somebody's calling us to tell us that that is true right now. Yom Kippur versus Tetelestai. Say, Mark, why are you throwing up Hebrew and Greek and all that stuff? Yom Kippur means the day of atonement. I was listening to a Jewish sportscaster about a month ago. That's when they had their yom kippur. He fasted for 24 hours. And at the end of it, he says, well, I hope my sins were forgiven. I probably needed 48. I'm like, what? We as Christians, we're tetelestai. When Christ said it is finished, paid in full. Tithes and offerings, again, we throw this language around all the time in the church. I'm guilty of it. That's the Old Testament law. New Testament covenant is about being generous and giving out of generosity. Why? Because Christ gave up his life for us. We need to be generous with our time, our talents, our treasures. The Exodus, all the Old Testament is based on the Exodus. The resurrection, you made me say, Mark, are you saying the exodus is not good? The exodus is good, but the resurrection is better. It brings hope, it brings new life, it brings assurance, it brings confidence, it brings courage, it brings the ability to live a better life. We're dead to sin and made alive to Christ, and we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The temple, we don't go to a temple anymore, this is not a temple, that's why Words matter. Church is not a church building, which we associate it with. We now are the temple. We have the Holy Spirit that resides in us as we move. I talk to many people, hey, and maybe this is one of your favorite verses up here, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Do you might know what that is? For I know the plans I have for you," says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a future, to give you a hope. I would encourage you to go back and look at the context. First, there is 70 years of captivity and discipline and judgment before you get to those words. I believe a new verse that should take over Jeremiah 29, 11 is Ephesians two ten. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do that we should walk in them. We are God's masterpiece. We are his creation. And the church, the ecclesia, is his movement that he wants to use to change communities and to change lives and to change this world and to change America for his glory and his glory alone.